when God decided to share his heart, when God decided to share his personality, when God decided to share what was the most important things about his own character with his people, he initiated this new time with a show of force. It started with turning the Nile River into blood. The Lord was in the process of moving powerfully through his people who were enslaved in the nation of Egypt. They didn't build the pyramids, by the way. The pyramids had been built for about a thousand years. The Bible says that the Hebrew slaves built store cities, Ramses and one other place, Pithgah, in Egypt, out of mud brick uh, that they had to make for themselves. So no, the Hebrew slaves did not build the pyramids. Again, they'd been up and running for about a thousand years when the Hebrew slaves were delivered by God right around uh, 1500 BC. But he began with a show of force, which was a direct calling out of the gods of Egypt. And it began by turning the Nile River into blood, which of course had ramifications for the entire nation. He warned Pharaoh that more trouble was on the way through his servant Moses and Aaron. And uh, the, the show of force continued with frogs, gnats, flies, cattle were afflicted, boils uh, took over the Egyptian populace, hail, locusts, and then darkness, which was a direct assault against the sun god Ray, whom the Pharaoh himself personally represented. And then God wrapped up his show of force against the nation of Egypt when he decided to display who he was to his people by the destruction of every firstborn human and animal in the nation of Egypt. But the show of force wasn't over because as Pharaoh allowed his people to leave Egypt and go out into the wilderness of Sinai, Pharaoh said, this was a mistake. I just lost my labor force. Who's going to be building my supply cities from here on out? And so he gathered his whole army and chased them off into the wilderness where God destroyed them all. <laughs> When God decided to show his people his heart, his character, his personality, who he was, he started with a massive show of force. And now the nation of Israel, some scholars believe as many as a million people or so, are now huddled at the foot of Mount Sinai. And then God lit the mountain on fire. <laughs> the show of force wasn't over. He descended in his presence on the top of Mount Sinai. The mountain was covered in clouds and in darkness with lightning and with fire. And it was shaking. And there was a horn blowing from heaven. If you can imagine the scene, it's just power after power, forceful exhibition after forceful exhibition. The bottom line is when God decides that he is going to move through his people, when he is going to show who he is, he likes to start with a show of force, and he's willing to make a big mess, and he's willing to fight. This is how it started. And then, of course, the voice emanated from the top of the mountain. God spoke directly to his people, and he issued the ten words, the ten thoughts, the ten principles. We know of them as the ten commandments. They're manifestations of God's character. They define his personality as well as defining his people. They are a manifestation. They're 10 big ideas about God's heart. And it began with the show of force so that his people would know that he's really, really, really serious about these 10 ideas, these 10 commandments, these 10 words, these 10 principles. 
And the biblical text tells us that when God started speaking to his people, these, this was the first thing that he said. Mountains shaking, on fire, lightning, horns blaring from heaven, darkness and thunder. And then the voice of God. And this is what he says. It's found in Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 2. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. This is how he introduces himself. He hadn't spoken directly to his people until this point. And obviously they've been through at least a few months of these massive displays of his authority and his power. God had clearly showed that he is willing to make a big mess of things and to fight so that his people would uh, pay attention to who he is. And he introduces himself as the one who delivered them from slavery. And the first big idea this morning is that the Ten Commandments, God's ten thoughts, ten principles, defining not just who he is but who his people are to be, separate servants from those who are subservient. When you dwelt in Egypt, you were slaves and you were subservient. That ship has sailed. I was willing to make a big mess of things and to fight and win and set this mountain on fire to show you that I have the power to do what I want, especially with my people. You were subservient. Now you are my servants. And this is what the Ten Commandments did. This was the big lesson to the Hebrew slaves, former Hebrew slaves, who are now Hebrew servants, that God is looking to communicate. It's the big idea behind the Ten Commandments, that the Ten Commandments not only define who God is and give us a glimpse into his personality and his character and what is eternally important to him, but it also separates his servants from those who are subservient. Because at the end of the day, the Hebrew nation was going to serve somebody. They were either going to serve their Egyptian taskmasters, or they were going to serve their God, or another master of their choosing. And God says, this is what delineates servants from the subservient, and I'm calling you to be my servants. Interestingly enough, Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments in a couple of different times in the New Testament. One of those times is found in Matthew chapter 22. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. This series for the next 10 weeks is going to be exploring the Ten Commandments as we look to answer a number of different questions. One of those questions is, what does service to God look like when we define it through the Ten Commandments? Understanding that God was willing to make a big mess and fight and blow stuff up to get this message out to his people. The other question that we're going to be answering is, how does this reflect God's personality? How does this reflect his nature? Why are these things so important to him? The Ten Commandments are broken into the first four commandments, which are commandments uh, that his servants serve towards God. And the following six commandments, commandments 5 through 10, are commandments that uh, his servants serve towards each other, the community in general. Listen to how Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 37. It was stump the chump time. People try to do this with pastors all the time. So, Pastor Josh, you know, were there dinosaurs, and how were they wiped out, and how old is the planet anyways? They just love to see pastors squirm to see how they're, stump the chump. Uh, that's what I call it. You guys probably have nicer words for it, but it's when someone has an honest question, uh, and it's a difficult one, you know, are there extraterrestrial aliens, Pastor Josh, and, you know, uh, stump the chump. It was stump the chump time for Jesus, and the question was, what is the greatest commandment? Here's Jesus' answer in Matthew chapter 22 verses 37 through 39. Jesus said to him, 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets, the text continues, depend on those two commands. Jesus summarizes the Ten Commandments, Commandments 1 through 4, as love the Lord your God. And he summarizes Commandments 5 through 10 as love people. I've, I've heard that somewhere. Uh, that, that's, I, I, it escapes me where I've heard that pithy little phrase that we should love God and love people as a summary of what it means to be a Christian and as we serve the Lord, some of you might be wearing a shirt that has it printed on the back. It's how we choose to summarize the mission here at River Church, that our job is to love God and to love people. Why did we choose that? It's a beautiful summary of the Ten Commandments, and it accurately reflects Jesus' way of summarizing the Ten Commandments, which define the difference between those who serve and those who are subservient to sin, and it also helps us understand who God is, his personality, and his character. I loved growing up in Preston. If you uh, take a right out of the school driveway and go down 164, go past the River Ridge Golf Course where it used to be Brewster's Apple Orchard, and turn right on George Palmer Road. If you're going about 55 or 60 miles an hour, which is terribly irresponsible and I don't recommend it, and put the car in neutral, you will be able to coast all the way to the bottom of the hill that I grew up on, about almost two miles down the road. Don't, don't do it. It's so much fun. And we used to do it in a Ford Ranchero, which was terrible at it, and now we've done it a few times in the Prius, and you actually have to put the brakes on turning into the driveway of my childhood home. But anyways, I grew up there on five acres or so. It was a beautiful piece of land. We had access to Broad Brook, which is a tributary of the Quinnebog River, and we used to fish there and throw tubes in the river and float on down the Quinnebog. And uh, we had, I had wonderful times playing outside. But I had the most fun of my life as a child playing in the front yard. And it wasn't that great of a front yard. It really wasn't that big. Our whole front yard was honestly about the size of this room. That was about the size of our front yard. And it wasn't particularly flat. It sloped towards the road, which is not awesome. Uh, growing up with two younger brothers, we played every sport there was to play, and then some in that front yard. And we played our hearts out. Now, like I said, though, I grew up on a very steep hill. Uh, there were a couple of times as a child, especially in the winter, where there were terrible accidents at the bottom of the hill. It's right where Crude Road comes into Old Jewish City Road. That's right at the base of the property where I grew up. Uh, I, I mean, terrible stuff where, where dad came in in the middle of the night and was ripping blankets off of our beds to go and help someone who was going into shock because they just lost control of their car. It was a steep, dangerous hill. And cars were going fast whether they were going up the hill or down the hill because if they're going down the hill, well, they were going fast. And if they're going up the hill, they had to get on the gas to get up this hill. And our house was right in the middle of this. And so cars were always going fast. It's on a corner. It's blind. And the bottom line is our front yard was a very dangerous place to play. It's not like our front yard in Putnam now at all. Yet we played our hearts out there, every sport you can imagine, all of them involving balls of some sort, wiffle balls, footballs, basketballs, soccer balls. One of our favorite games was to huck acorns at each other and use a wiffle bat as a lightsaber to defend against the acorns. I mean, all of that stuff was in our front yard. 
And like I said, we never felt like we needed a bigger yard. We never felt like we wish our yard didn't slope towards the road. We never felt in any way slowed down in any of our sporting activities in a relatively small, slopey yard on the side of a very dangerous steep hill with a sharp curve at the bottom. Why? Because there was a fence around this yard. Now, when I say fence, it was about knee high, and it consisted of one four by four that every eight feet or so was then in the ground. It wasn't a stockade five foot fence. It was very easy to jump over. We had lots of fun walking on top of it. It was only knee high and only a four by four rail fence. But it was enough of a fence to mark the edge of the yard from the road. And we knew as boys that you can play your heart out in the yard, but when the ball goes in the road, everything stops. Everybody's listening. And one person is now hopping the fence, going out into the road as fast as humanly possible, getting the ball, throwing it back into the yard, and now we're going to continue playing our hearts out. If we had never had that fence in that yard, it's kind of like me in the corner of the stage. I just don't want to get that close because I have a hard time looking at you and telling where the edge of the stage is. And so I stay three to four feet back. But in our yard, we could make amazing plays right up against the fence, knowing that the fence was going to hit us right around the knee, and it would stop us, and it would give us caution, and it allowed us to play our hearts out within the safe confines of our yard, knowing that when something went out of bounds, we knew where out of bounds was, and everything had to stop, and everything had to change. It's the beauty of the Ten Commandments. It's God defining, these are the things that are so important to me, I'm going to make them mandates. They are true of me now, they were true of me in eternity past, and they are true of me in eternity future. And as I want to engage with you, my people, I want you to play your hearts out within the confines, within the safety of my 10 thoughts, my 10 ideas, my 10 commandments, of which every other law is derived, and which Jesus summarizes with two big ideas, which is love the Lord your God with everything you have, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's the summary of all of the law and the prophets. And so for the next 10 weeks, we're going to take a look at these aspects of God's personality. We're going to define the fence so that we can play our hearts out in the safe area that God has delineated for us. You actually get more enjoyment out of life when you know where the limits are than wandering around, wandering around wondering if you've just displeased the Lord somehow, or if you've crossed some kind of line, or if the circumstances in your life are just circumstances because that's the way life goes, or if they're the judgment of God. We live a timid, and we don't play our hearts out in our life until we understand and perfectly realize and are comfortable with, where's the fence? Where's the place that God has marked out for his people? What defines the limits of his heart? We're going to learn how to play our hearts out this summer, and we're going to learn to play in bounds, understanding where out of bounds is through our study of the Ten Commandments. The nation of Egypt is in shambles. They're camped out in the middle of the desert. The crazy mountain is on fire. It's smoldering. It's lightning. It's thunder. It's fog. It's darkness. Horns blaring. The voice of God is coming from the top of the darkness. Moses is standing on the mountain itself, and the people are standing at the base. And God actually says something kind of funny here. Uh, he goes, hey, Moses, make sure, set up barriers so that the people don't rush the mountain like at a concert. 
Make sure the people keep back from the mountain because my presence is so real right here and I'm so holy that my people, with all the dangerous stuff happening on the mountain right now and the proximity of my presence, it will not go well for my people if they decide to rush the mountain. And Moses says to the Lord, hey God, they're not rushing the mountain. (laughs) In fact, your people, they had a conversation with me. They said, make it stop. (laughs) Stop with all the things And whatever you want to communicate to them, just talk to me, Moses, and I'll pass it on. Because honestly, Lord, after all this display of power and the obviousness that you're willing to make a mess of things and fight, your people are freaked out of their minds. They're not rushing the mountain, and actually they want it to stop. Let the mountain stop shaking. Let the horn stop blaring. And God said, fine, that's what I'm going to do after I have a little conversation with them. And he has this introductory idea, which is, I am the Lord your God. I am the one that rescued you from the nation of Egypt out of the place of slavery. And here's the first thing you need to know about me, Israel. God speaking directly to his people. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. Do not have other gods beside me. It's the first of the Ten Commandments. Do not have other gods beside me. The first thing, and this is so crazy, the first thing that we learn about God's personality is that he's jealous. The Bible says this any number of times, and obviously this is the first time where it comes through in a commandment, but it's a reflection of God's personality, it's a reflection of God's character, and if we were to pass around three-by-five note cards this morning with little golf pencils, and say, hey, write down an aspect of God's personality. I doubt any of us would write down, oh, he's a jealous God. Like, we would think that was a bad thing. And yet it's the first commandment. Do not have any other gods before me. In fact, according to the Hebrew tradition, according to the Jewish tradition, verses 1 through 3 comprise the first commandment, where it's stated positively, where God says, I am the Lord your God, and then he follows up with, do not have any other gods before me. He is a jealous God. He wants to be worshipped. He wants to be adored. He wants to be trusted by his people. He will not tolerate. He will make a mess of things and he will fight when his people place their heart, place their affections, place their worship to any other God besides him. This pen is a Zebra G301. If you're going to spend any time with me at all, especially if you live with me, you know that there is one rule about this pen, which is you're welcome to use it, but you better put it back. I have an issue with pens. I've spent years researching pens. I have a lot of reasons why this is the best pen in the world for me. And you're welcome to borrow it, but you better give it back. It's not a gift, it's a loan. And I'm not going to go on and on and on about why I think this is the best pen in the world, a Zebra G301. They're available at Target in packs of 10, of which I have at least one package at home at all times, because some of you do not obey the commandment. (laughs) The first fight that Trish and I ever got in, which I'm not going to go into at this point, was it 1988? The spring of 1988 in Dr. Barton Egan's class in physics? We were lab partners because she did not treat the pen with respect. I will make a mess and fight over my pens. I do not use Bic sticks. I don't even like to touch them. I think they're dumb. 
I like Zebra's G301s. And I always have at least two or three on me at all times. And here's the weird thing about every single time I've let somebody borrow my pen. They all say the same thing. Ooh, that's a nice pen. I know. <laughs> it's not particularly expensive. They're easily available, but you haven't put the time and energy into researching the world's perfect pen like I have. And if you're curious about the 18 reasons why this is the world's perfect pen, I'll be happy to bore you over coffee and donuts after church. But I promise you one thing, that if you write with it, you will say what everybody else says. Ooh, that's a nice pen. I am jealous over this pen. I guard these pens. I protect these pens. I, I own about 13 of them. I can tell you where they all are right now. It's not healthy. It's not good. But write with the thing and tell me that I'm wrong. I am jealous over my pen. There are no other pens for me. I know that other pens exist. I'm happy for you and your other pens, but you're wrong because you're using something that's garbage. You should be using a Zebra G-301. I'm jealous over my pens. It's a uniqueness of my personality. It's a reflection of who I am. It's important to me that my pens are used and then placed back where you found them so that other people can use them. That's why, including myself, that's why I'm so particular about my pens and I always know where they are. And I know exactly who has one at any moment. Uh, God is jealous over his people. He has a lot of people. He understands that there's different kinds of people. But at the end of the day, they're his people. He made them. He discovered them. He saved them. He delivered them. Specifically, the Hebrews from the nation of Egypt. And he's communicating to his people that you shall have no other gods before me. Not because there aren't other gods. There are. There's plenty of false gods. The Bible refers to five different entities as gods with a lowercase g in the Bible. Sometimes people, God, the kings, for instance, are referred to as gods of the people. Sometimes angels are referred to as gods. There's a unique phrase in the Old Testament called the sons of God. So there's a number of different places in the Bible where God refers to other gods. We know that there are other gods. But at the end of the day, the Bible also says that there is only one God, that he is unique. He is without rival. And he demands one thing of his people. It separates his servants from those who are subservient to another lesser God. And that is their attitude towards his personality and his character. And the first part of his character that came forth from the mountain that was shaking and that was on fire is that you shall have no other gods before me. You can like all kinds of other things, but when it comes to your worship, when it comes to your fealty, when it comes to your heart, when it comes to your love, when it comes to your service, when it comes to who you are afraid of and who you are not afraid of, you are afraid of me. That's it. You're not afraid of anybody else. You serve me. That's it. You don't serve anybody else. You worship me. That's it. You don't worship anybody else. And I will love and provide and care for you as I've already shown by the big mess and the fight that I made in Egypt and the current fireworks display going on on the top of Mount Sinai. The Ten Commandments, aspects of God's character, who he is, and it defines the servants from the subservients. I'm going to wrap up our message here this morning. We're about five minutes out from concluding our time together this morning. By way of applica application, a couple of thoughts. 
interestingly enough, just believing that God is God doesn't necessarily prove a whole lot about anything because from God's perspective, it's so obvious that he's God, that he is the creator, that he is worthy of worship, and that his kindness to his people has been displayed for thousands of years. We know that God doesn't really think a whole lot about the fact that people believe that there is one God and that he is God because in James chapter 2, verse 19, James writes that even the demons believe that, that God is one, that there is one God, and they shudder. But the demons don't make decisions of faith. They don't do anything to serve or worship God. They're in rebellion to God. And the reason that they shudder is because they know that, the, that God ultimately is going to make a mess of them and fight them and win. That's why the demons shudder. They know that there's one God. And, and, and they shudder and they're afraid because they know that they are living in active rebellion to him. But those of us who desire to be his servants, it's important for us to understand his personality. It's, under to, it's, it's important to understand the uniqueness of God, of what makes God, God. And of course, the first big idea, we'll be exploring the nine others, is that there is no other God besides God. That he has the exclusive right of our allegiance, that we are to pledge allegiance and worship and give our faith to no other entity, not before we place it with God first. We also know that God is beyond compare. That there are no metaphors, there are no analogies that are sufficient to describe how unique and how powerful and how incomparable God is. And what he expects of his people, first and foremost, is that they acknowledge that he is God and have no other gods before him. That he is first, above our families, above our finances, above our health, that God is recognized as God in our life. And you might be thinking this morning, you know, I, I'm okay with that if things were going better. But right now, there's some stuff going on in my life where I'm not particularly happy with God. I'm not particularly pleased with God. I don't particularly understand God. I'm not entirely sure that I want to draw near to God and be one of his servants. And the thing to understand this morning is that the God who was willing to make a mess of a nation and completely destroy their army is still the same God who is willing to make a mess and to fight to be your God. That is, he is jealous. Isn't that so interesting? The word that none of us would probably ever choose to describe God, he uses to describe himself first and foremost, that he is jealous for his people. And specifically, he is jealous for you. If that means he needs to make a mess of things and fight, then he will. Because he wants to be acknowledged as preeminent. He wants to be acknowledged as unique. His desire for his people is out of control. It's not right. He's jealous. It's a word with negative connotations, yet it's associated with the first commandment that there are no other gods before us. And so this morning, maybe you're going through a time of difficulty or distress. You're not feeling particularly interested in matters of faith at all. But possibly to think and pray about the fact that maybe there is a mess, maybe there is a fight going on in your life right now because God wants you to turn to Him. Because God delivers and then we obey. This is the model that we see from the Hebrew slaves who turned into servants. 
They were delivered, and then they obeyed. And possibly there's something this morning that God wants to deliver you from, and it feels like a mess, and it feels like a fight. That sounds exactly like the God who set the mountain on fire. Sounds exactly like him. He is jealous for you. He's willing to make a mess, and he's willing to fight that you would place him above everything. Maybe this morning you've been a Christian for 400 years, and you've grown used to the mountain firing. You've grown used to the horns blaring. You've grown used to the shaking of the mountain. And it's time to freshen our hearts and to renew our minds and to have a new appreciation that our God is the kind of God who is exceedingly jealous. And he's not okay with normal. He's better with passion than he is with being ignored. And it's time for us to turn our hearts fresh to him this summer as we reflect that we shall have no other gods before our God. In just a few moments, we're going to sing and we're going to have a chance to pray and and worship the Lord as we leave this place. But before we do, would you join me as I pray, as we ask the Lord's blessing to be his servants rather than to be subservient to something of our own choosing. Would you join me as I pray? Heavenly Father, we would never apply the kinds of thoughts and ideas about you that you apply towards yourself. You're this destructive, powerful entity demanding your people's attention so that you can tell them that you're jealous, so that you can tell them that you are passionate about having their worship and attention. Heavenly Father, this morning there might be some of us here who who have never made a decision of faith, that are are struggling with some difficulties in our lives right now, and, and to hear that you're the God of the mess, that you're the God of the fight. Well, Father, that means that maybe you're more germane, that you're more applicable, that you have more to do with us than we previously thought because we thought you were the God of nice people. And so, Father, in the middle of our mess, in the middle of our fight, maybe for the first time, we pray something like this. Heavenly Father, fight on my behalf. Heavenly Father, clean up my mess. Heavenly Father, I want to place my faith in you. Your son so perfectly summarized your law, and I want to love you, and I want to love my neighbor, and I need to be delivered from this place of bondage that I'm in right now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Some of us might need to pray that prayer or one like it. Others Others of us just need to turn our heart afresh to the mountain that is on fire, where God is speaking directly to his people at the top of his lungs, saying, this is who I am, please pay attention. And you are God, and you will not put up with any other gods in our lives. So, Father, we come before you humbly. We come before you willingly. We ask that you would also fight on our behalf, and that we would be courageous to fight on your behalf, that we would be willing to have the conversations and to share the scripture, and most importantly, to pray the prayers that people like your servants pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.